0: Hey there, everybody. This is Tim Easton, and you are currently listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Hetchart, weekly music
1: for the new music business. Enjoy. From Patrick Clifton, The Label Recovery, Part 1 purpose from chris castle show me the splits tiffany red illuminates stealing publishing and for music business worldwide anthropic trained its ai to rip off copyrighted lyrics music publishers allege in escalating court battle well this is coming down Mm, the pike a lot of stuff about this Wow, we got a lot to talk about. Jay and I have been talking for the last 45 minutes about all kinds of things. We're going to share those with you when we come back right now. It is time for the podcast. We're hitting the button now.
0: Stand by for transmission.
1: This is London
0: Coffee. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart.
2: I woke up at the corner of Trinity and 41, to high. To even know where I was going the Lights had switch once more and Someone slammed the horn And I slowly made my way on down the road To pull over Thank my lucky soul Everybody else already knows You never know How long it takes in between the
1: Every dream starts with some shaking. I'm not one to ask when it comes to
0: pass. Every day is another chance
1: to find
2: your way.
1: Well, Jay, good morning to you. 49 minutes in, we just have <laughs> <laughs> been having... Oh, lovely time chatting.
3: That's not unusual for us. Um, not and we, unusual. we could talk for another hour or so. And for those that haven't heard us talk about this, this podcast really came about because you and I were doing this anyway. We would just be yeah. doing it at some restaurant and talking about the business and talking about, you know, jobs that we're working or artists that we're working with. And um, the fact that we're just hitting the record uh, button, It doesn't change any of that stuff. It's really the highlight of my week is uh, I can't wait to, you know, share uh, the week uh,
1: with you. No, we just catch up and and gab, and uh, it's nice to start a show with a little muse, of course. That was... uh the intro that you heard was a, a Tim Easton song called Find Your Way. He's an Americana roots rock folk poet. His new album, Find Your Way, coming out May 17th by a Black Mesa Records with numerous U.S. and overseas tour dates announced, and I like that track. I, I do, too. You Thank you, Tim. We really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's... And, uh, uh, I'll go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you were, you were talking about you have a, an upcoming... Uh, podcast that that I'm pretty excited about and talk about the the interview you just did. Oh, yeah. Um, We didn't
3: even have this on our agenda. We just happened to be talking about it. You know, I do a couple of other podcasts, Uh, one of them uh, behind the set list with uh, Glenn Peoples over at Mm -hmm. Billboard. And it's such a joy to do uh, that podcast because you'd be surprised how many artists have never been asked about their set list, about the songs they perform live. You know, why do you open with this song? You know, why do you play these three songs in a row? Why why do you do these cover tunes? And there's a really great website called setlist.fm. If you haven't Mm -hmm. been there, look up your favorite artists and you can even click the analytics tab and it'll show you basically based on years and years of shows, which shows, or I'm sorry, which songs they play the most, maybe which cover tunes. So anyway, uh, the, the one that you're alluding to, is a couple of days ago, Glenn and I sat down with Neil Finn from Crowded House. And you know that I'm a huge uh, fan. And that came so I close am. to being yes. a, uh, you know, Chris Farley moment.
1: <laughs> the, Chris, <laughs> the infamous Chris Farley moment. Well, and, and that got me to thinking, you know, we've been both kind of lucky to have to, to do this kind of work and interview people that we've grown up yeah. being fans of, et cetera. Who who was the person you were the most nervous with when you talked to them and interviewed them?
3: It was Neil Finn, uh, by far. Um, You know, we've talked to Shania Twain and, you know, uh, just a lot of really, really great artists. Um, But it was Neil because I bought all those... Split Ends records and Crowded House yeah. records and Finn Brothers and all of that. And I've seen him live, you know, maybe 40 times. It's, I never miss him when he comes to town and it's it's just always so great. Um, so that should probably be dropping the first week of March, give or take. So watch uh, Behind the Set List, an incredible uh, conversation with uh, Neil Finn. They have a new album coming out May 31st called Gravity Stairs. Oh my gosh, it is so good, and you can, all, you can listen to the new track. The first track released from it is uh, Oh Hi, and it's got this adorable video where they take this like little kid who's dancing around and they stick Neil Finn's head on it. <laughs> you know, almost like photos, you know, so it's not meant to look photorealistic, but it's actually a joy to watch. And they've been doing three songs from this new album uh, for almost a year. So some of the hardcore fans have heard some of these songs live. Um, you know, his song, his son, Liam sings one of them, um, which is called the howl anyway, uh, new album, May 31st, gravity stairs,
1: uh, Neil Finn, crowded house. It was a career highlight having that conversation. Oh, love it. Love it. Love it. And if they're going to be doing, doing two dates, I need to check them out. It's been a long time since I've seen them live and they are fantastic. Yeah. Fun stuff.
3: Always. Okay. So let's talk about, before we jump into the stories, a couple of things you and I touched on before one is, um, our good friends over at media, they have a survey and it's in your morning coffee uh, this week and will be uh, next week. Um, and it's a, a survey about digital service providers. And you should do the survey. It doesn't take very long to do it. Um, You'll have a chance to win $1,000. Plus, just by, you know, doing the survey, you get one of their, you know, really great deep dive reports, either State and Future of Music Fandom or Music's Podcast Potential. But we've had, you know, Tatiana Cirasano and Chris Thackra, you know, on uh, this podcast. Um, we love Keith Jopling and all the things that he's doing with the song Sommelier. Um, we're big fans of media and love helping them out, so please uh if you get a chance uh, fill out that survey, you might even win a thousand bucks.
1: Heck, yeah, a thousand bucks is. A thousand bucks. Not nothing. (laughs) Dude, it's worth your time. Absolutely. And you were also on the Inside the Mix podcast, speaking of podcasts. That's right. That
3: went live this last week. You know, I sat down with Mark Matthews, who does the Inside the Mix podcast, and we had a really cool conversation. It's a really interesting podcast. Um Uh, highly encourage you to check that out. Um, The other thing that you and I were talking about um, is this um, Spotify sort of masterclass. And it's really, that sounds like it's much more important than it was. It was really just sort of a high level look at their campaign kit. And I just wanted to touch on that because I attended that this last week. And they talk about really the four main ways that you can sort of, uh, target audiences and advertise audiences through Spotify. You know, number one is playlist pitching. And everybody knows that you go to Spotify for artists and you can, you know, you can pitch your upcoming tracks one at a time for consideration for uh, their curators. But there's other opportunities there. They have marquee ads, um, which has been around a while. Um, they have uh, showcase ads, which is fairly new. Um, we're actually doing a couple of those right now. And then something that has a little bit of controversy, the discovery mode, which if you're through one of the majors, you know, they're not allowing their artists to participate major indies in discovery mode. That's where you basically pay, instead of paying an upfront cash payment for this, you know, artist uh, discovery, it's really more about you pay a little bit of your um, royalties and they put your music in front of people who would most likely uh, listen to it. And then the last thing just really quickly is a new thing that's in beta um, that I'm just about to try with a couple of artists. And it looks like they're doing it only with larger artists at this point. And it's Spotify clips. And again, this is in beta and you probably know what it is. I mean, it's, when you talk about clips, it's short form video. I think it's up to 30 seconds. And that's really so big right now on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere. everywhere, Exactly. Um, So... Anyway, and, and some things that seem to be um, some, some areas where people are sort of focusing on those Spotify clips or things like, you know, like what is the narrative, you know, give us some behind the scenes, um, maybe a live or an acoustic clip. So I'm interested to sort of try that out and see how that works. But that was
1: that Spotify um, sort of masterclass that they uh, went live with in the last couple of weeks. Super cool. Well, interesting thing from TechCrunch, TikTok launches its Add to Music app feature uh, available in over 160 countries. They announced uh, last week that it is launching its Add to Music app feature, which lets users add a song playing on a clip to services like Apple Music and Spotify in 163 new countries. uh, TikTok first rolled out the feature in the U.S. and the U.K. back in November. A month later, the company expanded the availability to 19 more countries. Yeah, and that's there. a big deal. Lichen. Because like that, it's, yeah.
3: you know, there's so many users on TikTok. It's so popular. And even, you know, mm-hmm. putting aside the, the universal issues that they're Thing. ironing out right now, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you're dropping that barrier to entry. If you're seeing something on TikTok that lights you up, you can immediately capture that music. And I think that is a really good uh, advancement. So users can see an add music button below the clip description and next to the track name right? And again, this is just rolling out to all of these different countries. They can tap on the button and select the music service of their choice the first time, right? And then it remembers. Users can change the default service by accessing the music menu under settings. If users don't choose a playlist for adding songs from TikTok,
1: they'll be saved in a default list like Spotify's liked songs list. So notably, Spotify has realized that a ton of music discovery takes place on social platforms. So apart from forming a partnership with TikTok, it is also integrated with Be Real, Instagram, Snapchat, and the artist formerly known as Twitter, now X. So users can easily add songs to Spotify. Yeah, nice
3: nice advancement there. Um, The other thing you and I were talking about is SoundCloud announced that they're introducing mood targeting for ads. And I think this is amazing. Mood targeting enhances ad relevance. It basically allows advertisers to match their audio campaigns with a listener's music mood, right? Not just uh, the genre. It draws on research showing a direct link between music's emotional connection and brand loyalty. Well, duh,
1: yeah. So, mood targeting leverages SoundCloud's AI powered mood analysis which is data generated based on the mood of tracks advertisers can now align their campaigns with these moods ensuring a harmonious fit between the ad content and the listener's current experience this alignment increases ad relevance and significantly enhances the listener's experience making ads feel less intrusive and more in tune with their current state of mind i think that's really smart because it is interesting yeah well Most of us listen to
3: music based on an activity or a mood, not necessarily a genre. And I think that's really important. Um, They go on to say that advertisers uh, choose from a combination of nine different moods. Uh, Angsty, (laughs) celebratory, chill, energetic, focused, happy,
1: soothing, love, and my favorite, relaxed. So uh, that's pretty cool. Nice. Well, it'd be a good time right now, Jay, to give a shout out to our sponsors. God, we certainly appreciate it. We've been doing this show for 185 episodes and we could not do without our sponsors. The Your Morning Coffee Podcast brought to you by friends over at Banzoogle. For over 20 years, Banzoogle has made it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music. Now they've added a brand new EPK plan so that musicians can create a professional single page electronic press kit in minutes. All the features you need to design an EPK are already built in, including fully customizable templates. Preset EPK page layouts, music players, images, text bio, and video embeds, a gig calendar and press quotes, and access to Banzoogle's award-winning support team seven days a week. The new EPK plan starts at just $6.95 a month, and your morning coffee and your morning coffee podcast listeners can go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days. Then use the promo code MorningCoffeeEPK, all one word, to get 10% off the first year of the new EPK plan subscription. That's Banzoogle.com promo code. Code Morning Coffee, EPK, when you sign up for the EPK plan.
3: Yeah, and you mentioned this is episode number 185, but you and I have probably done five or 10 you know, bonus episodes, so mm-hmm. we're, we're probably closing in on 200. I'll have to check that. Um, we're also brought to you by Hypebot. Uh, we love Hypebot. Since uh, 2004, Hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. Hypebot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing
1: platform bands in town oh yeah bands in town over 80 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations and messages from their favorite artists it's the number one artist service platform connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. And before we hit before you and I started talking this morning, my wife walked over with her phone to show me a tour date on Vans in Town. App. Yes.
3: <laughs> hey, it works, right? We're it, and, it works and finally, we're really we're well. brought to you by the Music Business Association. Uh, they do the Music Biz Conference, which creates the rooms in which the important conversations that shape the future of our our industry really take place. Representing more than 90% of the music industry at large, the Music Business Association serves as a connective tissue for the global music business and provides a trusted forum where ideas and collaborations can flourish. Join us for the Music Biz 2024 conference in Nashville, May 13th through the 16th. I'll be doing a panel there uh, with some very smart people. So come by and
1: say hi. You betcha. Big thanks to Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And every week when I get to hang out with my friend Jay, whether we're recording or not, we're just yapping on Zoom, uh, it is a joy for me to do that. He is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. Uh, Thank you. And
3: every week I look forward to sitting down with my good friend Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, former of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI,
1: and Universal Music Groups. So let's jump into the stories, Jay. The first one is from Patrick Clifton, The Label Recovery Part 1, Purpose. And we talked to Patrick, Was it, it was late last year, as I recall. It was a great conversation with him.
3: Yeah, yeah. He wrote the uh, article, The Record Label Crisis. And you and I absolutely love that piece. We talked about it. Patrick came on the program and sort of walked us through it and this new one that's in your morning coffee this last week that you just mentioned the label recovery part one purpose um, it it really digs a little bit deeper um, into the changing roles and responsibilities of labels and we could talk for hours about this piece I highly recommend that you read it but I thought it would be good to hear it straight from Patrick, to sort of walk through things like, you know, the shift towards artist services companies and, you know, the credibility um, that's now decided by music fans and maybe not tastemakers and really get a sense of this article and the follow-up to it, which is coming soon. It's called the label recovery part two. So let's listen in to our conversation with Patrick Clifton patrick good to see you again thanks for joining me
2: uh always a pleasure always a pleasure thanks for having me and just a reminder uh you can follow uh my thoughts on my medium blog medium.com slash at tunes and tails.
3: yes very good uh highly recommend it you've got a new piece and in your new piece it's called the label recovery part one Uh, colon, purpose, you wrote that record labels have always been the music industry's engines for artist development, right? There's been a shift sort of towards these artist services companies. Talk a little bit about that shift.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, you know, if you think back pre-COVID, when you thought about successful music companies around that time, I think really you'd be thinking about major record labels. Um, So, you know, take, for example, Warner Music uh, at that time, uh, you know, who coincidentally are are pretty old school uh, advocates uh, of the funnel structure that I talked about in the record label crisis. You know, that was really work still working for them at that point. They were having major global success with artists like Ed Sheeran and Dua Lipa. Um, and then we had COVID, and I think COVID changed a lot of things. Um, you know, also prior prior to COVID, there were lots of artist services, distributors, and other companies offering self-release um, infrastructures for artists. But um, there was a perception in the industry that, oh, you know, hey, all that's great, but um, you know, you kind of struggle to to, to get really big uh, working within that paradigm. Um, so we had COVID. And uh, in the UK, we had this whole campaign uh, called Broken Record, uh, which was spearheaded by Tom Gray from Gomez uh, and other artists, uh, really protesting about the economics of streaming. Um, you know, which had really come to a head during COVID when they they couldn't uh, tour and earn money that way. Now, during that whole thing, um, and I think you know there was a whole there was there were parallel campaigns all over the world. Uh, certainly in the US uh, and countries like Germany and France as well. Um, and it was the DSPs really getting the heat. But in the UK, the, the heads of all the major labels went to Parliament, to a committee that was investigating this. Uh, and they had a really tough time. I mean, it was, a, it was a it was a hard day in the office for those guys. And then the kind of the, the whole media focus and and that heat really turned. On major record labels in terms of you know the economics of uh of this whole new way of doing things being not 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 kind of working and it really being down to the way major record labels and their deals were structured um and actually during that what was quite funny was like the major started to point out that hey you know we have these indie services uh we have these self-release businesses like the orchard and awa we we own those and so we're so we're providing choice um and then you know those services and others uh, more independent services like like believe etc all started to ramp up their publicity efforts and shout much more loudly about their good news stories and um you know their stories about all the artists they were breaking yeah and then about a year ago we had ray release this number one record in the uk and i I think it did you know uh, uh sort of equally well uh, in more than than just the uk quite quite a number of different territories um and her unique story you know she'd been on a major label it had been really problematic she'd been trapped in a deal and then released from the deal and self-releasing she has this number one record it seemed to encapsulate everything that was wrong with major labels and i think this marked a turning point where the artist and the manager community um started to look at these services as equally or more attractive places uh, to help their artists develop um, especially when um, a lot of artists and managers working with with their in their own uh, sort of working with their own teams uh, are generating you know a core audience and a fan base um, or, or have the ability to do that um, and then what we're also hearing of course is those services offer much more attractive deals to the artists with more favourable royalty splits, um, without life of copyright deals, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's one of the reasons um, in the piece, I argue that labels really need to think about, you know, their their purpose. Um, If I was overseeing a process of change and was faced with some of those challenges, incidentally, I'm available for those kind of services. um, I'd want everyone on the team really thinking about and coalescing around uh, a common vision for what the label now offers to artists to fans and also to to music culture. Yeah. You also point out
3: that today, quote, credibility is decided by music fans, not a set of elite tastemakers, end quote. Tell us about that a little bit.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's um sort of a a, a bit of a complex and in in parts counterintuitive uh part of the piece. So I, I argue that a label has a cultural and creative purpose so you know labels exist to make great music and to contribute to music culture and so forth i also point out that a label is a business but i argue that there's a relationship between these things so artist success artistic success excuse me helps to drive revenue in the long term um and you know that revenue Helps It generates a sort of feedback mechanism that helps power more artistic success, et cetera. Um, And in the old days, this artistic success used to be defined and measured in terms of perceived credibility. And that was generally a badge handed out by elite tastemakers and was separate to music consumption. So I'm thinking, you know, journalists, radio producers, DJs, the staff in certain indie record stores, Etc. this kind of elite group who were able to like give something the badge of credibility. However, you know, nowadays that type of credibility counts for little and that elite dwindles in size and influence. And I think we only have to see the kind of, um, you know, recent news of, of, about Pitchfork uh, as evidence of that. Um, and really, I think nowadays the collective consumption of music from a group mm-hmm. of fans who love an artist is is a sign um, of collective cultural impact Um, but this is where it gets a bit paradoxical the act of streaming itself it's quite devoid of any emotional connection so i think if if i was trying to measure cultural impact and i was trying to measure credibility i i I think i'd struggle to say that streaming helps me to do that And, and that's that's partly because the act is so frictionless the the user or the fan just doesn't really have to do very much to kind of engage in the way that they might have done uh you know 20 years ago hunting out records in record stores yeah uh, but it's also because they're getting fed that music um you know for, um uh in more like lean back listening places like uh, playlists and uh, radio type playback on those streaming services yeah so i think you know teams may need to look elsewhere uh, from social metrics to live music, KPIs, et cetera, to measure uh, cultural impact.
3: Yeah, your, your first piece that you and I talked about, the record label crisis, sparked a lot of great conversation. This new one is the label mm. recovery part one purpose. What can we expect from the label recovery part two?
2: Yeah, thank you. Well, I hope it doesn't take as long to write the next one, but it, it might do because the next topic is really about deals um because i I sort of feel like if if the purpose needs to be revised the measures of success need to be refreshed as a consequence the deals also need to change um because the, the 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 deals need to really uh match the collective strategy of label and artist uh and you know also need to match this new purpose um and you know, from what I understand from uh friends of mine who both both work in AR um and in, you know, the music legal business, uh nothing has, has changed. The deals really that we tend to offer artists uh on the label side, um uh, are are fundamentally the same as they have always been with a few, you know, um nuanced differences that have evolved over time um but but i think you know may, maybe we need to just have a look at that root and branch and so that's what i'm going to explore uh in the in the next uh article uh which yeah like i said hopefully it won't take me quite as long this time
3: <laughs> looking forward to it uh patrick awesome. always a pleasure keep up the great work we'll talk again soon thank you so much you got take it. care
2: thank you
1: well, wow, really great to hear from him, and you know it is fascinating to see the evolution and the way things have just changed over the years of what what labels do, and of course there's so many new players in the space that that an artist can can go with, and it's a uh, change in times, man. It's really interesting.
3: Yeah, it really is, and and one of the things that jumps out at me, and then we can move on to the next story is that he poses the question in this article. He said the first stage. Um, must be a question of purpose. That's what this article is about. What is a record label for 2024? Once we've defined that, what is success for a label and how can it be measured? So he's looking at all the right things And I think these are the conversations that we're having. And I will do some shameless self promotion that, you know, I'm doing a panel at South by Southwest with some really smart people about the evolving changes um, and the roles and responsibilities of labels. So, more on that uh, later, but uh, really great piece. And again, that's Patrick Clifton. His uh, blog is called Tunes and
1: Tales, and uh, it's uh, one of those must reads. It is indeed, it is indeed. Uh, our next story from Chris Castle, show me the splits. Tiffany Red illuminates stealing publishing. And this has this was one of the most impactful things I've read, certainly this week, maybe this month. It is, well, you got to go, you got to follow the link and see her essentially rant and talking about the the kind of something that we don't really talk about a lot, which is, again, these uh, songwriters that are basically having to share their publishing with an artist that covers them because they don't have the leverage sometimes to push back. And this has been going on for so long. I mean, oh, mean Talking back decades. to the Elvis days. Yeah. yeah, decades. And it is kind of, again, one of these dirty little secrets. And boy, it's so impactful to watch her her video it's it's unbelievable yeah there's a couple of great videos online the one
3: that this story links to i think it was on uh, x the artist formerly known as twitter um but before we jump into this piece i'd like you to hear it um straight from tiffany red this is this is what she said
0: songwriters have been invisible There's still people that say, oh, you're a ghostwriter. But because that's something that's a name in the industry, and it's a treatment as well. I fight to open the door for my peers. We're just trying to like make it a job that has a livable wage attached to it. It's crazy what that can do. It can change a whole industry.
3: This is a big problem. And it's one that doesn't get talked about very much. Like you mentioned, I hear this from songwriters that if they get the chance to have their song recorded by a superstar, Mm -hmm. typically someone in that camp, um, whether it's the producer, whether it's management, whether it's the artists themselves, they're asking for a piece of the publishing on that in order for them to record it. And they didn't participate as Tiffany red says, you know, there's a track that she alludes to that was written six years ago. And yet this big artist is taking 25% of it on the publishing side. And remember there are two sides that we're talking about here, the master, the recording, and then the publishing, which is the songwriting. So let's, let's dig into Chris Castle's uh, piece this week.
1: Yeah. So Chris starts this, this piece by saying it's unfortunately an old story but he says, but that doesn't make it right. One of the most underpaid creatives in our business are songwriters who just, in quotation marks, write songs. Just is an odd word to use, but it's a common way to refer to those who give artists a voice because it really does all start with the song. As Tiffany Red says, says in her video, the system is simply unjust. Oh, my gosh. The system,
3: in quotation marks, is what has always been called stealing publishing this is when an artist or a producer, and it happens with producers, but for different reasons. Well, they they threaten songwriters who created a song. The artist may record with not covering that song unless the artist gets a chunk of the publishing. The amount can range all over the place, but often it's at least 25% of the copyright. That is amazing. So... Only are they not entitled to songs' earnings as a financial interest, they are definitely not entitled to the copyright
1: because they created nothing. Right. On top of it, songwriters often have to eat many costs in order to get the song written, demoed, and pitched. And in parentheses, he says, I can't tell you the number of times the songwriter demo essentially becomes the arrangement of the final song. So demo is relative. Mm. He said, there's a bunch of opportunities along the way for people to write themselves into the song. And when they did, it was a job that they were probably being paid to do anyway. He says, I've encountered producers whose managers demanded a piece of publishing for the producer to even listen to an artist's demo. Wow. You know, on the
3: producer side that you just mentioned, some producers want a piece of all publishing on the record. And if they actually write, they want their uh, contributor share as a writer on top of the publishing they are already stealing. Why? What possesses anyone to think that they are entitled to do this? And entitled is exactly
1: the right word. Right. One reason they steal publishing is because the producer royalty is unlikely to even recoup the producer advance in a streaming real uh, reality unless the track is a huge hit. And in parentheses, he says, remember that a producer gets a percentage of what the artist gets, say 30-ish percent, and the artist gets somewhere around 50% of the fraction of a penny per stream. He says, this is especially true of producers who enjoyed a lifestyle in the pre-streaming era and are trying to keep it going. It's understandable, but that doesn't make it right. No, and remember, the songwriter
3: isn't getting an advance. On top of the insult of stealing publishing, the artist has no intention of paying for it because a songwriter should consider themselves lucky to get the cover, which often is a career-making record for the artist opening
1: up income streams the songwriter never participates in. So when faced with these overreaching demands, songwriters have to make some hard choices. Chris says, occasionally I get to tell the artist team to fuck off. (laughs) More often, though, as Tiffany says, songwriters acquiesce.
3: Yeah, I I think Tiffany is also hitting at point that Merc Mercuriatus made at last artist rights symposium. This is what Merc Mercuriatus said. He said, let's face it. This is insulting. If I sat down and explained to my uh, decent Greek working class parents that this is how songwriters get paid, they'd be shocked. If you were to go to your bank manager and explain how songwriters get paid, they'd be shocked. Doctors, lawyers, everyone who has some understanding of the economics of the world or what drives an industry and what creates value for an industry would be shocked by how songwriters
1: are paid. Right, so Chris goes on to say, but nobody can bring the frustration home like a songwriter on the receiving end of this injustice. He says, watch Tiffany's video. Take 15 minutes out of your life and watch it from beginning to end with no distractions. She's absolutely correct that until the artists stop, until they let their team know that stealing publishing is not acceptable and if they do it, they're not only helping the artist, but they'll be fired, then it will start to change. Right. And she's right about something else too. A songwriter shouldn't need a
3: gatekeeper to protect them in a situation that should not be happening in the first place. There's a line that we all learn from parents, teachers, coaches, mentors, the line between acceptable and unacceptable treatment of other humans. Right or wrong, if you like, although, you know, it's a bit simplistic. Stealing publishing is wrong. Stealing publishing is on the wrong side of that line. Uh, This is what I think whenever I have to deal with the situation. How do you sleep at night? So watch the video. It's not a rant. It's the truth. And I'll leave you with this thought. I did reach out to Tiffany Redd. I'm hoping that she'll come on and talk with us about this. But uh, kudos to Chris Castle for shining a light on this. And huge shout out to Tiffany Redd for
1: having the courage to stand up. Yeah, absolutely! Wow, so powerful. Um, all right, Jay, let's jump into our last story from music business worldwide. Anthropic trained its AI to rip off copyrighted lyrics. Music publishers allege, in an escalating court battle. Um, oh my gosh! Wow, what an amazing story, and not surprising as we as we've talked so much about AI and are following kind mm-hmm. of um, how quickly things are are changing and improving uh, in terms of just the, the, the technology getting better and better and better at various things. Here we are talking about this story. Yes. And as you and I have said over and over, this is
3: just the beginning. We're going to see yeah. more and more of this and we are as AI gets better and better and as people use it and as they use someone else's body of work. Um, mm-hmm. So what happened? Well, the copyright bot, a battle between music publishers and AI developer Anthropic it's taken a dramatic turn, and the music publishers allege that Anthropic intentionally trained its Claude AI
1: chatbot to rip off copyright or copyrighted lyrics. So this is in quotation marks. And, 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 Anthropic's own training data betrays its understanding that its AI models would be used to search for and provide copyrighted lyrics. So said lawyers for Universal Music Group, Concord Music Group, and Abco in a submission filed with the U.S. District Court in Nashville, Tennessee last Wednesday.
3: Yeah, citing Anthropic's own training records for Claude, the submission states that Anthropic quote-unquote fine-tuned its chatbot By feeding it prompts meant to generate copyrighted materials. According to the submission, those prompts included things like this. What are the lyrics to American Pie by Don McLean? Please provide the lyrics for The Only Hope by Mandy Moore. Do you know the lyrics to I Am the Walrus? Can you give me the first verse? Please retype the lyrics to the song Mad About You by Sting. And can you help me identify the
1: song, the name of the song, that includes the following lyrics? Wow. So, Anthropic even coached Claw to be helpful in response to demands for derivative works, stated the music publisher's submission. They go on to say, for example, Anthropic prompted the model to make a short story from the lyrics to the song all along the watchtower and to rewrite Listen in Eminem's style and Not Afraid in Beyoncé's style. Wow. Universal Concord and Abco launched the lawsuit against Anthropic last October, alleging systemic and widespread infringement of their copyrighted song lyrics by the Claude chat box. Right. In Anthropic's preferred future, songwriters will be supplanted by AI
3: models built on the creativity of the authors they displace. That was from the uh, court filing last week. Though it's, it's one among a growing number of copyright infringement lawsuits against AI developers in the U.S. today, the case may hold more significance than most because it pits major music industry players against an AI company that is backed by an investment from Amazon of up to $4 billion and an investment of up to
1: $2 billion from Google. Big money there, big yeah. money. But so the case can be viewed as a proxy war between the music industry, including the world's largest music rights holder, UMG, and big tech over the extent of copyright law and the age of AI. Mm. According to the music publishers' complaint filed in October, which can be read in full uh, online, uh, the Claude chat box is able. The chat box is able to generate identical or nearly identical copies of those lyrics in clear violation of publishers' copyrights. Right. The suit included a list of 500 songs and asked for damages of the
3: maximum provided by law for each allegedly violated work or $150,000 per work infringed. If the court rules for the maximum damages, the 500 alleged uh, infringed songs would cost
1: Anthropic, are you ready for this? $75 million. Yeah, so the music publisher's complaint alleged that Claude copies and distributes publishers' copyrighted lyrics even in instances when it is not asked to do so. For instance, they they go on to say, when Claude is prompted to write a song about a given topic without any reference to a specific song title, artist, or songwriter, Claude will often respond by generating lyrics that it claims it wrote that, in fact, copied directly <laughs> portions oh, of Publishers' God. copyrighted lyrics. Oh,
3: my Yikes. gosh. Uh, well, when prompted to, quote, write me a song about the death of Buddy Holly, end quote, the chatbot responded by generating output that copies directly from the song American Pie written by Don McLean, in violation of Universal's copyright, despite the fact... The prompt does not identify the composition by title, artist, or songwriter. Um, the complaint stated that. The, the complaint also stated um, it, it includes a lyric sheet of a song called The Day the Music Died, a lyric from American Pie, which Claude allegedly described as a song I wrote. Most of the song's lyrics are lines taken
1: directly from the song American Pie. Wow. So this goes on to say, It is hard to imagine a machine more destructive to artistic control than one that first copies lyrics, then alters them or combines them with works by other songwriters or AI-generated text in ways that contravene the songwriter's intent, the music publisher stated Wednesday mm. in court filings. In November, the music publishers went before the court again, this time asking for a preliminary injunction to prevent Anthropic from using their copyrighted lyrics.
3: Right. That request asked for anth- Anthropic to be ordered to implement effective guardrails to prevent output that reproduces, distributes, or displays the company's works, and that the AI company should be prohibited from using, quote, existing unauthorized copies or creating new unauthorized copies, end quote, of the publisher's lyrics to train new AI models. And that's the key here, Mike, and we talk about this nearly every week. If you're going to use somebody's body of work to train your AI, that machine learning, you need to have the rights to do that. Uh, This is not going to go away anytime soon.
1: No. So you may be wondering, what is Anthropic arguing in its defense? Uh, they responded to the music publisher's request for an injunction in January in a fiery written response that sought to demolish the music publisher's case and in so doing offered a solid glimpse into how the company plans to defend itself against the allegations. Anthropic asked the court to reject the request on a number of grounds including that the company has already put in place in quotation marks safeguards that would prevent the kind of lyric copying that the music publishers allege and that Universal and the other plaintiffs and not Anthropic are themselves responsible for the copyright infringement they cited in their case. (laughs) What? Anthropic said that it had recently implemented additional technological
3: guardrails that you mentioned to prevent a reprise of what plaintiffs did, meaning that users of Claude, that AI chatbot today would allegedly not be able to prompt the chatbot in such a way that it would offer up copyrighted lyrics. The, The safeguards quote, are a part of the model and will remain in place indefinitely. As of now and going forward, no one should be able to replicate what plaintiffs did to engineer the facts on which this lawsuit has been based, end quote, Anthropic stated. So they're saying that they've fixed it, so now you can't uh, find
1: those copywritten lyrics. Right. So then you may be wondering, how have the music publishers responded to (laughs) Anthropic's arguments Mm -hmm. in their submission on Wednesday? The music publishers' lawyers essentially argued that Anthropic's entire response is a bunch of nonsense. Or to use the more (laughs) politic language of court documents, Anthropic based its case on provably false narratives. Provably false
3: narratives narratives. Anthropic concedes that the critical facts of its infringement, you know, it, it does not dispute that it copies publishers' lyrics on a massive scale to train its clawed AI models, that its models reproduced, distributed, and displayed copies of those lyrics, or that additionally its models generated twisted derivatives of those lyrics that are antithetical to the creator's intent, all without
1: permission, the music publishers asserted. So the publishers rejected Anthropic's argument that the company had already put in place safeguards to prevent the kind of copyright violations it stands accused of. So the submission asserted uh, Anthropic is wrong that guardrails adopted since the filing of this lawsuit prevent further infringements." (laughs) In instance after instance, Claude continues to output publishers' lyrics.
3: Wow. Publishers continue to obtain verbatim and near verbatim copies, mashups, distortions, and unlicensed derivatives of lyrics of the songs involved in this lawsuit. Uh, And that's from that submission.
1: Yeah. So final thought, there's a little doubt that the latest salvo from the music publishers is harmful to Anthropic's case, especially the perception that Anthropic may have misled the court by claiming that going forward, no one should be able to replicate the copyright violations that the music publishers were able to create with the Claude chat box. Yeah,
3: we can can hardly declare that this case is over, though. You know, after all, these are arguments over a preliminary injunction and not arguments in the case itself. Anthropic could yet argue that if Claude is still spitting out lyrics in violation of copyright, it's due to their safeguards not working properly and the company needs to have time, you know, to fix that, to get it right.
1: But that, in turn, could form the basis for another argument against the court ordering it to stop Claude from offering up lyrics. You can't order us to do something we're incapable of doing. Ultimately, it looks more and more like likely that this case will hinge on whether or not the court accepts the argument that Anthropic's use of copyrighted lyrics amounts to a fair use exception to copyright laws.
3: Right, but if the court does accept that rationale, then all the other back-and-forth arguments become irrelevant. Anthropic will have won the right to use those lyrics without authorization and massive implications for the music industry and other
1: owners of intellectual property. If the court rejects Anthropic's fair use argument, then all of its actions before and during this case may prove very relevant in terms of what the court orders the AI company to do and the amount of damages it may order Anthropic to pay the music publishers. As far as complex intellectual property cases go, this one is a nail-biter, and boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, true words have not been spoken. (laughs) my God. (laughs) I do not know where continued. this is going. I to don't be either. continued, yeah. yeah, but on that note, we're going to wrap up the show. We do want to thank everyone for listening in. If you enjoy the show, we would certainly appreciate it if you tell one friend. And of course, we want to thank Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association for helping us out. Put, helping us put the show on every week. We could not do it without them. And of course, Jay and I want to thank you, the listener. We are so appreciative of all the kind words that we hear from everyone, and when we bump into people at trade shows and stuff, and they Mention they listen to the podcast. That just makes our heart go aflutter, doesn't it, Jay? <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And on that note, we're going to let you go for the week. Have a good week, and we'll be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast.
0: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business, Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchog next time for the digital music news you need to know.